it sent shockwaves through the community that somebody might be charged and found guilty of manslaughter in these circumstances. From Monash Law School, this is Just Cases, the backstory to the biggest court cases you've never heard of. I can't look this case up in a book. Right. It's not written up, it's not imprinted anywhere, literally, but it's right. been imprinted on the, the minds and memories of people who inject drugs in Australia. On Just Cases, we explore cases that have changed the way we live our lives and the stories of those caught in the crossfire. It's June 1996 on the streets of Cabramatta in Sydney's west. It's late at night and two young men will cross paths for the first time. But when the sun rises the following morning, one of these men will be found dead on the street. What exactly went down that night is still not entirely clear and the stories of these two men has gone pretty much untold. But my guest today says that what happened as a result of this case is unprecedented in Australian law and it's had a ripple effect that's continued to resonate to this day. Kate Sear teaches law at Monash Law School and she's felt the impact of the story of Quat Cow and Matthew Sutton in the decades since that tragic night in Sydney. So Kate, take us to that night in June 1996. What do we know about what happened? Yeah, well, we know some things, Melissa, but we don't know everything. Um, so it's a fascinating story. The, the case that I'm interested in began on the, the night of the 18th of June, 1996, where a 21-year-old man named Matthew Sutton met another man called Kwok Cow on the streets of Cabramatta, which um, is a suburb of Sydney, as many of our listeners will know. And the two men didn't know each other before that meeting. What we know is that Mr Sutton told Mr Cow that he had some heroin, he'd bought some heroin in Cabramatta and at that time actually Cabramatta was one of the largest um, street drug markets in the country. So, so Sutton told Cow that he had bought some heroin and that he wanted to inject it but importantly he didn't have a needle and syringe to use. And so he approached Cow and asked him if he could help. And Cow, um, as it turned out, said that he could. He had a needle and syringe. He had one back at his house. He actually lived in a boarding house um, in a suburb called Canley Vale, which is just right near Cabramatta. And so they struck a bit of a deal in that Cow said to Sutton, if you can give me a lift back to my boarding house, I will give you a clean needle. So that's what happened. It's not entirely clear what, what happened next. Um, there's a couple of things that we know, and most importantly what we do know is that Matthew Sutton at some stage over the next little while, maybe at around midnight, did inject himself with heroin using a needle that Cow had given to him. It's unclear where that happened, whether he injected himself inside um, Cow's house or outside on the street, we don't know. Cow certainly said that all I did was give him a needle and that was the end of it mm. and he went on his way. But what we do know is that the next morning, so the morning of the 19th of June 1996, Sutton was found dead in the street um, right near Cow's boarding house at mm. about 8 o'clock in the morning. And Sutton was sadly one of more than 200 people who had died of a um, drug overdose in New South Wales just in that year alone. And it was in the midst of a, a kind of an epidemic type situation in the mid-90s, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. There was um, a sort of spike, a series of heroin overdoses or drug injecting, but particularly heroin overdoses across Australia at that time. And I think, yeah, I think there were 226 heroin related deaths just in New South Wales. So right. sadly, Matthew Sutton was one of them. And um, and is a person who most of our li listeners will never have heard about, but for reasons I'm going to explain, um, a lot of people in, uh, out there in the community do know about for reasons I'll come to. So 
cow was charged with manslaughter of Sutton. That, that's quite unusual in this kind of fact situation, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It was it was sort of unprecedented that something like this happened and it has had a series of ripple effects that continue to resonate until this day. So cow was technically charged with um, having what we call felon- he feloniously slew Matthew Sutton. That's that what the charge... Very, very old-fashioned term. It is a very old-fashioned term. It is. And so he was charged with, with something that we call unlawful and dangerous act manslaughter. And the case then proceeded in front of a jury in the District Court of New South Wales. And so essentially unlawful and dangerous act manslaughter is a kind of complicated charge what it requires is proof that somebody had engaged in an unlawful act of some kind and that that act was dangerous mm. and that the dangerous act then caused the death. So explain to me how that kind of charge came to be chosen for, for this kind of act. What what do we know about what happened? It's a, it's a bit complicated, mm. so I'll take you through it. Now, the starting point is that there's a there's a law in New South Wales which is called the Drug Misuse and Trafficking Act. And there's a section in that, section 12, that says, and I'll, I'll just read it to you, that a person who administers or attempts to administer a drug to himself or herself is guilty of an offence. And this is the offence of what we often refer to as shorthand of the offence of self-administration. Right. In other words, it's illegal to inject yourself with drugs, okay. for instance. And so in that sense, Sutton committed an unlawful act because he injected himself with drugs. But No one would ever prosecute him because he was no, gone. No, exactly. So section 19 of that same act says that a person who aids, abets, counsels, procures, solicits or incites the commission of an offence under this division is guilty of an offence. And this is what Cow um, was, was accused of. In other mm. words... What Cow did that was wrong Mm. or unlawful was that he aided and abetted Sutton's self-administration by giving him the needle that Sutton used to inject himself with drugs. And that was the unlawful and dangerous act, if you like, that got Cow charged with this offence and saw him before a jury. Now, you mentioned that this is an unusual case. Why is it an unusual case? Well, there's a few reasons. One is that, first of all, it was unheard of for a person to be charged with unlawful and dangerous act manslaughter in these circumstances, where what had happened was that Cow had merely given somebody else a clean needle and Mm. syringe to use. And I say merely there. I know that uh, it might depend on your perspective Mm. whether there was something really um, Mm. egregious or immoral about that. But as I'll explain in a a while, that's actually quite a common practice Mm. among people who inject drugs and it's important and I'll come back to it. Mm. Um, It's also an unusual case in the sense that it's not a reported decision. So what I mean by that is that, as you well know, Mm. when we study law or teach students about law, um, you know, our students can go to the law library and flick through any number of volumes of books that um, have important decisions like the Marbo case and others of the High Court, where the, the reasons that a decision were made are set out and you can read them and study them. And this was a case that proceeded in front of a jury. Mm. So there are no written reasons for decision. And therefore, I can't look this case up in a book. Right. So it's uh, not written up, in it's other words. N- it's not written up. It sort of has no Precedential actual... Status. That's right. And no, it, it's not imprinted anywhere, literally. But it's right. been imprinted on the, the minds and memories of people from Cabramatta in mm. particular. Um, also from the Vietnamese community, of which Mr Cow was a part, and um, more broadly, people who inject drugs in Australia. 
people who work in my sector who do mm. drug research or drug policy or drug law and people who use drugs uh, are very familiar with this case because it sent shockwaves through the community that somebody might be charged and found guilty of manslaughter in these circumstances mm. for something that many people thought was quite innocuous, actually, yeah. merely giving somebody a needle and, and sending them on their way. So how do we come to know about this case if it hasn't been written up in the normal formal law reports or yeah. something of that nature? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. A couple of people wrote about it um, several years ago, and one of them I'm very grateful to is a researcher called Julian Schimmel. Um, but I often go to academic conferences, drug policy, drug law conferences, and people still talk about this case. So it lives on in people's minds for a range of reasons, but mm. one of them is because of the research that Julian did many years ago. And one of the things that Julian did is he managed to get the tape of the trial and he transcripted himself and he helpfully shared it with me and some of my colleagues. And the case was heard by somebody called Acting Judge Ford. And in his charge to the jury... Acting Judge Ford actually signalled that this was a very unusual and interesting mm. case. And I'll just tell you what um, Acting Judge Ford said. He said, this is the first case that I've ever encountered where a person who is present at the time of an injection and who supplies a needle has been regarded as somebody who is a party to, a participant in the crime. In a sense, it may well be that this is a test case. Well, that's kind of interesting because... As a case that's broken a kind of boundary by having a manslaughter charge for this kind of fact situation, it is a bit of an unusual case. And yet if it was a test case, we would have expected to see it have more emphasis or been repeated in other cases that have come since then. And yet that hasn't actually happened. Yeah, that's right. It it hasn't. And it's puzzling to me as to why that might is it possibly because it's just confined to its own special unusual facts in a, with the jury? So the jury were persuaded that Cow was guilty in these very particular one-off situations, although it's not such a one-off because it must actually yes. happen quite a bit where it people does. provide other people with clean needles. It does. It's a very common practice. Um, look, there's been a bit of speculation as to why this case might have even been brought in the first place and also why the jury did convict in this case. Certainly I know some people have taken the view that there might have been a racial element to it, that Mr Cow was of Vietnamese descent in Cabramatta, which, as I said, had a large street market of drug dealing and drug use. There's a long and very complicated history in relation to drug policy and people of Indo-Chinese or Vietnamese descent. So some people, I think, felt that cow might have been targeted in order to send a message to that particular community. What punishment was imposed for him for the guilty finding? His punishment was fairly lenient in a sense. He wasn't sent to jail. He received a three-year good behaviour bond and as I said, in a sense, what was perhaps most important was that symbolically that mm. sentence and that conviction really resonated mm. with people in that community who had this long history of mm. um, sharing needles and clean needles and syringes with one another mm. for reasons that um, we'll come to. You're listening to Just Cases with Melissa Caston and Kate Sear. And Kate's telling us the little-known story of Matthew Sutton and Kwok Cow. So given yeah. that there's no written judgment for us to work off and only the transcript of what the, I guess, the judge's um, statements were mm -hmm. at the end there. Can you answer something for me? And that is, what do you think this judgment missed or, or didn't say as mm. much as what it did say? 
I think what, that's what a great... What doesn't it address? Yeah, it's a great question because there's something at the heart of it, actually, that it misses, which I mm. think is what makes the case to me both so interesting and so important and also, I think, wrong. <laughs> um, so the statute law in this case, and we're dealing with um, those sections I mentioned earlier mm. from the New South Wales legislation, they don't ask us to consider the motivations of a person in Mr mm. Cowell's position. So it doesn't have to be that you intended to harm someone or no. you were negligent as to harm caused to someone. No. It's just, did you do it? That's right. The question simply, did Cowell give Sutton a needle? Mm. If so, He's Guilty. fallen foul of, of that section of right. the Act. But the thing that's lost in the case is that there are a range of reasons why people in Cal's position often give clean needles and mm. syringes to other people, including strangers, mm. but also people that they know. And uh, it's often because it has something to do with preventing harm. Mm. So it's actually a caring and benevolent act. And is that because when you supply a drug user with a clean needle, you're minimising the the harm that they might experience exactly. from the taking of the drugs. Exactly. So maybe we'll, if I can, just take you on a side mm. trip a little Why bit. For a, Let's go there. <laughs> for a little while and just tell you a little bit about some of those harms because they're actually at the, the, the heart of the case as I think about it anyway. So one of the things that we need to know is that many people who inject drugs live with what we call bloodborne viruses mm. and those are things like HIV and hepatitis C, so viruses that are transmitted through blood. And thus through needle use. And thus through needle sharing, sharing. actually. Yeah. So, for example, if um, a person who injects drugs, if I were injecting drugs and I shared my needle with you and mm. I had HIV or hepatitis C, you may acquire that mm. through using my needle. Mm -hmm. And what we know actually is that a lot of people in Australia who inject drugs do share needles mm. and there are very high rates of bloodborne mm. viruses, mainly hepatitis C. Right. And that goes to, I guess, why people talk about having safe injecting rooms. Exactly. So that people who are going to use drugs have the opportunity to have clean equipment and healthcare people nearby in case it's needed. Exactly. Because they are going to do it anyway. Exactly. So the figures are quite... Uh, alarming, actually, quite important. So around 230,000 Australians live with hepatitis C at mm. the moment and about 10,000 new infections occur every year and 90% of them are among people who inject drugs because right. of the sharing of needles. So it's a very major public health issue. Mm. And so what was missed or what was not able to be sort of explored in Kwok Cow's case was that depending on your perspective, he either engaged in an unlawful and dangerous act mm. that helped precipitate Matthew Sutton's death or he was engaged in a very caring and compassionate mm. act for somebody else he knew who needed access to a clean mm -hmm. needle and syringe. And um, we know that from research that this is a very common practice mm. among people who inject drugs, not just in Australia, but all over the world. And um, there's been some research done in New South Wales that suggests that about half of people who inject drugs collect clean needles and syringes for friends or family mm. or for their mates or even for strangers mm. like um, Cow and Sutton were and pass them on to other people who need them for exactly mm. this reason. Because it's a kind of currency in that environment. Yes, now, if that's the case, then there's quite a big gap between the way the law is actually structured and, and written down and the actual lived experience of the people that the law is going to apply to. There's quite a big disconnect there. Absolutely. And this practice that I've been describing where people acquire clean needles and syringes and pass them on to other people they know is a practice called peer distribution because peers, friends, you mm. know, distribute 
to one another. Or um, even non-friends, even someone exactly, that you strangers. don't know but you know that they're a user. Yes, strangers, family members. Mm. I think it's quite common amongst people who have members in their family who inject drugs, parents, for example, who will make sure that if their children are using drugs that, you know, if they're going to do it, they must at least get um, a clean needle and syringe mm. to do it. And that practice of uh, peer distribution is itself also illegal in most parts of Australia. So I mentioned some sections of that legislation in New South Wales earlier, but in addition to those sections, there's a section in New South Wales legislation and also in most states and territories Mm. that make this particular practice of passing on clean needles and syringes to other people also unlawful. And that that legislation's been on the books for decades in Australia. Is it still enforced as a matter of practice? um, not so much, I don't think. Mm. I'm certainly not aware of, of any recent prosecutions. But again, it's the sort of thing that lingers in people's consciousness. consciousness. So we have this very unusual situation where it's unlawful to distribute needles to other people. Mm. Um, despite that, people do it and it's very common. But there is certainly a sector of the population who are fearful of either being caught in possession of clean Mm. needles and syringes or being caught passing them on to Mm. other people. And this is where the importance of Cow's case comes back in because people know actually that Cow was prosecuted. People who inject drugs, that community of people is aware of that case. It's now nearly 20 years Mm. old. It's not reported or written down anywhere, as I said, but it's lingered on in people's memories. And I think in that sense, it acts as a very important and I think troubling deterrent to a commonplace practice mm. that people engage in that is actually a, vital a, to health. A deterrent to a health practice yes. as opposed to a drug practice. Exactly. And I think also too, I mean, I've done a lot of research over a number of years about um, drug law and drug policy and and these are often very emotional issues. People often respond very emotionally to, to drug use. Um, of course, we mustn't forget that in this case we have a young man, mm. Matthew Sutton, who was dead. And in that sense it's often... I think I can understand the response of a jury who might feel that somebody needs to be blamed mm. or held to account for that death. But I think, in my mind, Cow was not the person who should have been held to account. In fact, his motivations and his actions were probably very benevolent mm. and I think, sadly, that was lost in the case. Now, the case isn't really taught anywhere as an explicit kind of in the textbooks of criminal law um, and it's not really addressed much in the public but it has had this big impact um, in our drug laws and in people's attitudes are towards addiction. So what kind of message do you think this case has for us now? What, what, where does it stand for us now? We can sit here and, I think, talk about things like the specific law in question or some of the specific sections in question. But I think the cow case raises much bigger Mm. picture issues for us in relation to drug law and and drug policy. And most of all, I think what it is that people often try to grapple with is Mm. what is the meaning of this case or what kind of message does this case send more broadly about the idea that we would encourage people to help each other out Mm. or to care for each other to support friends and family um, or strangers who we encounter that use drugs and to engage in what are proven harm reduction measures like Mm. the use of clean needles and syringes. So there's a lot of questions that I'm left with as a result of the cow case. One of them is really, does a case like cow discourage people from injecting drugs in the company of other people? Mm. 
or having people inject in their own homes. Mm. What would Which happen? Which presumably is safer. Exactly. Right? Safer than being on your own down a laneway. Exactly. And not having anyone look at what's happening. Exactly. So if I knew, for example, that you injected drugs, I would much prefer for you to do that in my home so that I could support you and call an ambulance if I needed to, if, if you got into trouble, than to tell you to go off and do it down the street. But this kind of prosecution, or even just the reputation about this yes. single case is enough to say to people, you can't be doing that here in my house because I might be prosecuted. That's right. But what's really important is that what uh, happens technically in a case isn't Mm. always what people in the public end up understanding Mm -hmm. the significance of that case to be. It has a sort of wider symbolic significance and imprints in people's consciousness in a different kind of way. Given all of that, are there moves to reform this area of law? Because it sounds to me from what you're saying that it's not a good fit with reality, but it also might be something that was kind of grounded in thinking about these issues from 30 or 20 years ago and they've kind of gone a bit stale? I yeah. mean, have we moved on from this point? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a perfect way of describing it. So, look, the happy news is that there have been some changes in Australian law in the last couple mm. of years. So across Australia and all states and territories, these kinds of provisions have been on the books for decades But in the last couple of years, Tasmania, Mm. the Northern Territory and the ACT have all moved to deal with, first of all, that prohibition Mm. on peer distribution that I spoke about. And I was very pleased and very proud that my colleagues and I played a role in um, managing to to encourage the ACT government to repeal that law. So in the ACT, there is now no longer a prohibition on peer distribution. Right. But what about in New South Wales? But in New South Wales and Victoria, yeah, there is. That that remains on the books. And Mm. so it's actually a very opportune time to be having this conversation because right now in Victoria, there's actually a very broad ranging parliamentary inquiry Mm. into drug law reform happening. And uh, a committee of the Parliament is considering whether any changes to any of our drug mm. laws in Victoria are needed, and if so, which ones? And uh, <laughs> I can think of a few, but you know, <laughs> there's, there's plenty. But this, to me, is one of one of the ones that should be high on mm. their list. And and mm. I've given evidence to that committee, and I've I've told them as much. And one of the things that was very interesting is that a couple of members of that committee said to me, "I didn't even know that this was a law that we had on our right. books in Victoria." Yeah. And why would people? I mean, it's exactly. Real, it's it's so hidden. obscure. It's and obscure. And if you're a politician, would you really be aware of such a law? Yes. Dealing with a community that you might be entirely unfamiliar with. That's right. But I mean, it does go to that bigger issue about the health. Is it a health issue or is it a criminal law issue? Yes. And I'm wondering whether politicians are now ready to kind of move away from that crime construct. Yes. And uh, kind of accept more of the public health and even personal health issues that are involved with addiction. Yeah, I mean, there has been this long-standing tendency in law for drug use to be seen in a binary fashion mm. as either a criminal problem or a health problem, and in both senses actually to be seen as a problem. Mm. And what I think we need to do is move away from all of those conceptualizations and towards a harm reduction mm. focus. And a harm reduction focus is one that says, well, look, We acknowledge that a certain proportion of the public uses drugs, despite 
the opinions of some people who would say that it's possible to have zero drug use. I Mm. don't think that's realistic. And so what we should be doing is making sure that we put in place strategies that reduce harm Mm. among those people who use drugs. But does reducing harm end up encouraging other people to get involved? No. That's one of the big misnomers. There's there's no evidence um, that strategies like needle and syringe Mm. programs, supervised injecting Mm. facilities, which are uh, a topic of significant debate in Victoria Mm. at the moment. Mm. There's no evidence that if we establish these vital, life-saving health service harm reduction facilities that they encourage drug Mm. use. I mean, I think it's a ludicrous... Because what people would be worried about. That's right. I don't don't want to be a part of that because that's just going to encourage new addictions or new 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 problems. But I mean, I think you only have to think about it in relation to yourself. I mean, if if a supervised injecting facility set up around the corner from your house, Melissa, mm. doesn't mean that you'd wander down and decide to inject heroin tomorrow. P- probably, probably not. me. Yes. But maybe someone who's in a more vulnerable state than I am or more uh, kind of on the cusp of making various life decisions might be persuaded by yes. their dealer or their would-be dealer yeah. that it's all right, it's all going to be fine because you can't get in trouble and you can't get hurt. And that kind of, I think that's where people think that harm reduction yes. correlates with encouragement. Yes. Because and they're thinking, what, what about the person who's on the tipping point of becoming involved? Yeah. And that it normalises drug use. But what the evidence consistently tells us from Australia and all around the world is that that's just not the case. Mm. And in fact, that um, there's a certain proportion of the population who is interested in trying mm. drugs or there are certain people who will just try drugs mm. and and I think it's a profoundly moral and ethical and political question of why it is that we would not provide services mm. to these people that we know work, that save lives, that prevent harms, that um, preserve life and health. Why would we not provide them if mm. we know that they're available? And, and that's one of the great I think, political questions and ethical Mm. questions of our time. And it's a live question right here and now in Victoria, and I hope to see the laws change. Well, Kate, thank you very much for a very interesting case and some very interesting ramifications that have come out of it as well. Thanks, Melissa. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Melissa Caston and Kate Sear from Monash Law School. You can check out Kate's other podcast, The Outer Sanctum, on the ABC. If you'd like to learn more about today's case, check out the Just Cases website at justcasespodcast.com. See you next time. Just Cases is a production from Monash Law School. Music in today's episode from Audio Binger. You can check out the back catalogue of Just Cases online, justcasespodcast.com, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud. If you have an idea for a case you'd like to hear more about on Just Cases, get in touch on Twitter. You can find us at Just Cases Show.